Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. Yeah, I'm Bernard Beitman, MD. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I study the mind and the brain and its physical and cultural context. And meaningful coincidences like synchronicity and serendipity provide clues to how our minds and our brains connect deeply to our bodies, other people, nature, and our environment. They're clues to how reality works. That's why I've been very interested in them. Meaningful coincidences occur all the time in various degrees. There's a sine wave of them where you hit a lot of them and then you just lose some of them and being in the flow and then getting out of the flow and getting back into the flow are part of how coincidences get experienced with people. To notice them, you got to expect them. A lot of people say seeing is believing, but these days so much believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. So you got to believe they're there and they're useful. You can pre-order my new book, Meaningful Coincidences, due out September 13. Uh, the full title is Meaningful Coincidences, How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. And the link's below. And part of the reason I ask you to do it is you'll learn something for yourself and about your relationships. But it's a political statement as well, because it's a way of saying our way of viewing reality is pretty wrong right now. And we've got to be able to change it. And one of the ways to get into that is by paying attention to synchronicity. But here's my story for today. When I was five years old, I learned to quack like Donald Duck. I copied Richie, who was seven, lived across the street. Uh, we had talent shows at our local uh, movie theater on Saturdays, and I came in second to some three very cute little girls. I quacked at camp and other places. For years, I wanted to find a Donald doppelganger to quack with. And another part of this story has to do with somehow when as a, as a teenager, I learned a bunch of popular songs of the 50s and could sing parts of them when something reminded me of the lyric, I would burst into song because sometimes I think life is a musical, at least it'd be nice to make it that way. For example, hey there, you with the stars in your eyes, Love never made a fool of you. I could go on for that, but you get the idea. On June 21st of this year, which is two days ago from this recording, a new friend of mine introduced me to a really good Donald Quacker. This guy and his friend had quacked all over New York City for a week where they talked to everybody and themselves in Donald Duck talk. Wow, so I quacked with him on the phone. Then the same friend introduced me to someone else who people called a jukebox because she knew so many old songs. What a pair of coincidences uh, at the summer solstice, June 21st. What a nice pair of coincidences. My childhood and teenage selves meeting long lost mirrors of my mind. Jeffrey Kreppel is the Associate Dean of the Faculty and Graduate Programs at the School of Humanities and the Newton Razor Chair of Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. He is also Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at Esalen in Big Sur. Jeff is the author of 10 books, including most recently, Superhumanities, Historical Precedents, Moral Objections, New Realities, Chicago Press 2022 where he intuits an emerging new order of knowledge that can engage us in robust moral criticism, but can also affirm the superhuman or non-human dimensions of our histories, cultures, and futures. He is presently working on a three-volume study of the paranormal currents in science, modern esoteric literature, and the hidden history of science fiction for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled the super story, 
science fiction, and some emergent mythologies. His full body of work can be seen at his website, which you can see below on this link. Parenthetically, ladies and gentlemen, he thinks he may be Spider-Man. Now that's maybe a bit of a problem uh, as we discuss this, because we're gonna talk about synchronicity and superhumanity. And Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks Bernie. I'm, I'm honored and happy to be here. And you're, you're, you're such a scholar. <laughs> thanks, such a well, scholar. I that's, mean, that's what I am. I mean, I don't, I don't apologize for it anymore. I just, I just am who I am. Yeah, that's what you are. <laughs> that's what you are. And I mean, I'm an academic, but not, but not in the humanities. I was doing psychiatry, so we, we got what we call practical, you know. Yeah, right. But, but so are you in some form, very practical. You're practical yeah. about the future. So tell us what you mean by synchronicity is superhuman. Well, so the superhumanities is simply, my, it's my take on the humanities. You know, this, this broad um, spectrum of knowledge practices in the university today from the study of literature and philosophy, the study of religion and languages and, and sometimes the arts. Um, and when most people think, well, first of all, nobody knows what the humanities are. If you ask someone on the street, they just look at you like, what are you talking about? Um, the only form of knowledge that's recognized are the sciences and what we call STEM. And essentially what I'm trying to argue is that the humanities actually are filled with people who are essentially superhumans. And what I mean by that is human beings routinely enter altered states of consciousness, altered states of mind and body, and they get downloads, they, um, they get ideas, they get creative ideas, and then they write books and pieces of literature and plays and musicals out of those altered states. And so the argument is you can't really study the expressions of human beings without taking into account these superhuman or altered states of consciousness. That's that's essentially the argument. And it's a way of raising up uh, and celebrating, you know, our past, um, but also looking forward to our futures and, and basically begging people to engage these altered states as well as the scientific and, and technological forms of knowledge. Begging people, eh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we need to we need to beg at the moment. <laughs> we're 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 paupers in the in the humanities these days. The the culture doesn't know what we do and doesn't respect or like what we do in general. Um, and so I, it is a kind of begging. Uh, the humanities, uh, being as I went to Swarthmore College, which we had a few of them there. Uh, <laughs> you had a lot of them there. <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, that that it and at the University of Missouri, where I saw more of them, it, humanities could get very tied up in itself. Yeah, where they get caught up, uh, yeah. particularly um, in English, um, is, is where I was ran into it. Right, where, where they were using English language to really distort what they were trying to say to each other. Yeah. they didn't know what they were saying well you know what i mean better but there's a distortion so how do you how do you get through the kind of convoluted arguments uh, that english represents but happens in art history to some degree also how do you get through those convolutions to what you're trying to go talk about yeah well th that kind of jargony language you're talking about of course you or I probably can't understand when a quantum physicist speaks either, or I frankly don't know what my television repair person says, or the air conditioning repair, or the person who works on my car. Every specialized form of knowledge has its technical expression, and people outside that form of knowledge cannot understand it and will make fun of it. I think inappropriately, by the way. I think it's 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 a very precise and it, it does useful work. Um, but at least in the humanities, most of those critical languages are meant to take things apart 
and to essentially be critical of whatever the piece of literature or the religion or the history is. What I'm trying to say is that's all important. We need to do all that. We need to do all that deconstructive critical work, but we also need to see that things are built up out of these altered states and out of these, these superhuman states. It's, it's a kind of a both and approach. It's not just do the negative or the critical, it's also do the positive and the affirming. Well, there's, there's a, an analog in scientific uh, discovery uh, where you, you, aha, <laughs> goes the aha, but then you've got to yeah. like, like prove it somehow. You've got to like demonstrate there's a reality to it. Yeah, yeah, it's a sim that aha moment, of course, is, 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 is not restricted to the sciences in any sense. Uh, and it's really that aha moment that I'm trying to understand. And often that aha moment is very weird, Bernie. It, it, it involves things like dreams and precognitions and synchronicities and altered states of union with the, the universe or with one's environment. I mean, it gets really strange. And what we do in the humanities is we flatten all that out. We don't talk about it. But what I want to do is raise it up and talk about it because I think Excellent. it's really important. Excellent. Excellent. Now I think I get a better idea. This is something similar is with at least serendipity in scientific discovery. Yeah. If you ask Nobel Prize winners how they got how they discovered what they got. Well, it kind of like somebody turned on the stove too hot and left it on too long. And thanks for the money. I mean, that's what they would say, but then they got to go through all the proofs of it. So you're, you know, you know one, of, one of my jokes, Bernie, is that the sciences are really just subdivisions of the humanities. And, you know, people look at me funny and I'm like, well, have you ever met a scientist who wasn't a human being? And of course, they're, they're like, uh, no. <laughs> well, I'm like, well, there you go. I mean, the, the sciences are, are an expression of our humanity. They're an expression of human ways of knowing the world. They're not these objective descriptions of reality, you know, in some kind of um, non-human or, or completely objective sense. Jeff, um, are you saying that they're just people? No, I'm not saying they're just people. I'm saying they're also people. That's what and I'm they're saying. They're also people. Uh, they're yeah. also people. Well, yeah. uh, and part of what I'm doing with co the coincidence business is a transdisciplinary look at coincidences because Correct. they involve everything from uh, from rocket science and uh, atomic physics and and nuclear physics to uh, humanities to like. Uh, um, King Arthur and uh, and the activities of his court and the way people wrote about it and the, the great arts of the world and paintings and writing. Uh, these are all these are all places for synchronicities, coincidences take place and trying to be able to see what's common core is that there are people experiencing the world in unique ways. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about synchronicities and your work is you know, really what a synchronicity is at the end of the day is some kind of physical event that corresponds with some mental state, right? And so there's this subjective element and there's this objective element. And if you don't have them both working or resonating together, you have no synchronicity, you have no coincidence. So that's the humanities and the sciences, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a single sentence, you can't understand these moments without incorporating both forms of knowledge. The subjective and the objective. Correct. Now, I was waiting for you to take that a little bit further, Jeff, and let's see if it goes there. Remember, you spent some time at Esalen, and you can look over those cliffs at the Pacific Ocean and disappear, even if your body's still hanging around. It's, <laughs> it's very easy to merge with the oneness. Yeah. So what I thought you might be getting towards is when you get the subjective and the objective merging coming together at the same time you begin to be dissolve the boundary between self and other yeah i mean that is what i say i mean i i call paranormal events non-dual signals and what i mean by that is they're they're not random they're not meaningless these are moments in a human life in which the world is is becoming one and we're getting signals of that or kind of brief kind of precursors of that that unity it's not yet unity but it's certainly a sign of that unity that's that's on its way
Well, as you have made pretty clear, uh, we do both. We do non-duality and we do duality. And there's a, there's a tension between the two of them. Of course. And that tension is what makes us people here. Right. That tension in that, that polarity that is so much a part of living on earth. Yeah. This is a polarizing place as we see politically, but it's always been polarity. So I like to believe that coincidences help us manage both the non-duality and the duality simultaneously. Yeah, I think you're right about that, as you know. I, I, think, I think you're great, Bernie. I, I, I love your stuff. Well, I think you're wonderful, too. And so thank you very much, Jeff. I mean, I really do appreciate you, too. So it's wonderful to be able to share this with you. Let's, let's do um, uh, one of your, the coincidence story that I kind of remember most. Uh, yeah, the, so the, the X story has actually repeated itself three times in my life. Um, so the, the first one was, you know, I was just finishing this book on Esalen. I wrote a big book on Esalen and the American counterculture. Came out in 07. This was probably the summer of 06. And um, I was really kind of in this zone, as we say, and wondering why the human potential movement looked so much like the X-Men mythology. Uh, if you know something about the human potential movement, basically what it argues is that there are these gifts, these psychical or paranormal gifts that people have or experience, and that these are buds of our future evolution. We're, we're evolving towards some kind of greater human or some kind of Superman to use. Hey, keep going, man. That's how you're singing my song. Keep going. Yeah, well, well, that goes back to Nietzsche, at least as far back as Nietzsche, but it's also in people like Aurobindo and Teilhard de Chardin. And certainly in the human potential movement, that was the basic idea that we have these abilities and we're evolving towards their further and further integration. And I was like, why does that sound so much like the X-Men? I mean, come on. I mean... And then uh, I realized that, oh, my God, the X-Men mythology was born about the same time as Eslin was born in uh -oh, you know, 62, uh -oh. 63. Coincidence. Well, no, I, I, just think, I just think the culture was resonant. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. And the X-Men stuff was for kids. It was in New York, kind of snarky New York. Oh, it's just a set of fantasies. But the human potential movement on the West Coast in California was like, no, this is real stuff, man. We're, we're going to do this. And um, so that's kind of where I was in, when as I was finishing that book. And uh, I was with my family uh, in outside of Houston, Sugarland, actually. And we were, went to an X-Men movie that summer. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is this is Esalen. Uh, and I walked out of the theater and I, I looked at the I looked at the pavement below our minivan. And there was this what looked like a Christian cross, you know, which is not uncommon here in Houston area. And I looked closer and I was like, that's not a cross, that, that's actually an X. Uh -huh. And so I picked this X up and I was like, oh my God, this, is, this embodies perfectly what I've been thinking, this, this kind of weird comparison between the human potential. Now let's, let's slow this movie down for a minute. Uh, but east side, west side, all around the town, you were doing all around the country. <laughs> They were tightening it up in New York, but ahead of their time, not knowing it. And Esalen in California is like, hey, man, that's what it is. You're just playing it out the way the way it is. And so you could go to an X-Men movie and say, hey, that looks like Esalen. Yeah. And then you walk out and there's the sign of the X. And yeah. I, I, I want to add to this that for the last for 10 years, 10 years ago, I wanted to be Professor X. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe you are. I wanted to have a school that helped foster people's superpowers. Their, yeah, their, so, their so do I. That's why I call it the superhumanities, Bernie. Come on. And well, we haven't gotten to there yet. I mean, you, I'm talking to like a, a dean here. So you got So your, your language form is a little bit tighter than what I want to have with you right now. Right, right. So I haven't heard. I, all I got was this little Spider-Man in you. But what the idea that you would be Professor X, too. Well, well, something like yeah. something like that. I, I, yeah, I think I think we are Professor X. I don't think 
I personally am. I mean, I participate in whatever Professor X is as a, as a myth or a story, but of course, so do you. I mean, you were, you were in the academy, you were in a psychiatry department, and you were studying things that aren't supposed to happen. Uh, and they happen, and they happen to, they happen to humans who are superhumans, you know? So yeah, I think we both are. I think we all participate in that. Well, that let, let, let's, let's talk about what I, my words is different from your words. Yeah, we're all participating in it and like we're all part of this. No, we are teachers. We are facilitators. Right. I've, been a, I've been teaching for a zillion years and I just have that in me. Yeah. Uh, and taught psychotherapy, like got the national recognition for my psychotherapy program. But I like to teach the teachers of people. Yeah. And so do you. Yeah, I and, do. And, and not everybody does that. So to find you as like whatever modifying you're going to put on it for yourself as the as an ex as a professor X kind of person. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was talking about meeting Donald Duck finally. And now I'm getting to meet another Professor X. Right. I who mean, has more hair, by the way. Who has more hair. <laughs> and let's be sure our audience notices that. <laughs> I don't have a lot of hair, but I But have you got what's hair. there is there, and that you gotta be proud of it. So we I I mean the coincidence for me, not from is the Donald Duck, the jukebox person that I talked about at the beginning, and now you that you are a mirror, not the same, of, but a mirror of my mind as I am of yours. So thank you for talking with me, Jeff. Bye. Yeah, no, I'm happy. I'm happy to be your, your superhero, Bernie. You are, you are together. Yeah. We're together. So when you talk about superheroes, you're talking about potentials within each of us and the yeah. language we use, you and I, differ the language we differ in is that you're seeing the power more coming from the outside and we're tuning into it to use the terms that we're familiar with but not mm -hmm. quite right and i say that's more coming from inside and there's really both yeah yeah i mean listen i study religion i study the history of religions i study comparative religion and religious people are always claiming that the power powers come from outside them I personally don't think they're correct about that. I'm much more in your camp, but um, I do want to speak a language that people can understand. I, I'm, too, a, too, I, I'm trying too. to communicate yes. with human beings and, yes, yes. Um, and not just academics, because <laughs> uh, then we get locked into that jargon you were talking we about earlier. We do be able to stay with uh, everyday language as much as possible, yeah. uh, which is hard to try to make it clear in everyday language. Well, and this is why I talk about superheroes a lot. It's not that I'm stuck at 13, although I might be actually. Well, let's not think that's not possible. I yeah, mean, well, of course it is. yeah, psychologically I may be, um, but that's not why not I, I love superheroes. It's because people know superheroes. Yeah. They've gone to the movies. And so it's a language I can speak to people. And I'm like, well, see, this is actually real. This isn't just fantasy. I mean, yeah, it's fantasy that those things didn't happen, but these things did. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's just on a different, different level. Um, so that's, that's the kind of. Well, give us some examples from your life uh, and the people, you know, uh, and the X could be one of those of how these superpowers seem to manifest, not just in, and, and humanities people, which is so important. Yeah. I mean, you're making that really clear. You're yeah. trying to say humanities, be human, will you please? Uh, yeah. And recognize that stuff happens inside of you by inspiration or downloads, as they say now. And you communicate that to us and we appreciate that. Yeah. And please allow us to talk about how you can foster that in your students. Yeah. I mean, I, the easiest example for me to talk about is a good friend of mine here named Elizabeth Crone, whom uh, I wrote a book with. And, you know, so there's this theme in the superhero movies and comics where the, the hapless, the hapless human being gets struck by lightning, you know, in a lab or something. And, 
you know, the lightning creates superpowers. They become, you know, powerful. Well, this, this essentially happened to Elizabeth. I mean, she was, she was outside her Jewish synagogue and she literally got struck by lightning. I mean, she literally got struck by lightning and she died and she had this near death experience. And then she came back and now, or then she started to dream the future. She started to have all these precognitive dreams and that didn't happen before the lightning strike, you know? So there was something about the, the near-death experience or the electromagnetic event that made her essentially superhuman. And Elizabeth's still very human. I mean, you know, if you met her, you'd laugh and she's, she'd make you feel funny and comfortable, but she has these weird abilities. There's no question about it. Um, so that's kind of what I'm talking about. She's like, a real world super superhero or superhuman, even though she's, you wouldn't of course know that if you if you just talked to her. You've got the overlap between lightning striking and uh, turning into a superhero, uh, or some, or drinking some bad thing from the laboratory, or getting radiated. Or <laughs> it's something. always radio. It's always radiation in the Marvel comics. Yeah, it's always, it's always radiation. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think that happens in smaller ways, not as dramatically uh, to regular people, which is yeah. what you're trying to be able to say. Well, yeah, that's not what I'm trying to say. That's what I am saying. Well, what, tell us how you got struck by lightning and got transformed into like uh, the superhero. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's actually because of the humanities, frankly, what I Great. do. Um, you know, I was writing this book on the... Esalen and the counterculture. And I was traveling out to California a lot. And I was hanging out with people and talking to them. This was sort of been the first decade of, of this century. And I heard all these crazy stories, like I just, you know, one of which I just told you, or two of which, and I was like, well, that can't happen. Hmm. Um, but of course, I knew it happened, because these people were telling me and they weren't doing it for money. They weren't doing it for fame. They were, they were often doing it out of trauma, by the way. And they were trying to make sense of it. And they were looking to me to help make them sense of it, because I'm supposed to be the professor of religion who knows about these things. And I was like, um, well, oh shit, our, our, my discipline can't handle this stuff. It's just going to call all of this legendary, or it's going to say it's a, it's a power play, or it's some kind of social form. And I was like, you know, none of that really works. And so over the years, you know, enough of these stories happened. And I had had experiences in my past that kind of hinted at this. So I could draw on my own past, but it was really these human beings who converted me or flipped me to this, this other worldview. It was really just people, Bernie. It was people, telling, people. people telling you their stories. Yes, yes. And realizing that the stories were true, they really happened. And it doesn't mean I believe the content that they saw. It doesn't mean I believe their beliefs, but it means I understand and accept that these things really happened to them. Um, and so I started to have to develop this kind of working model of, okay, how do I take all these people seriously without signing my name to any one of their belief systems? Because as soon as I sign my name to a particular belief system, it means all the others can't be true. You know, it, there's an exclusion that goes on there. So I had to pull back and say, no, I'm not going to do that. But yes, I think these things all happen to all of you people. So how do I understand that now? That, that's kind of the, the goal that, that I set for myself. And that I think as a culture, we need to, we need to engage at some point. Um, how to take these extraordinary experiences seriously and as real, but not as literally the case for everyone. Um, and that's a tough one. That's a tough, that's a tough, that's a tough call. Not everyone gets called, do you mean, kind of thing? <laughs> well, there is a kind of esoteric um, structure to what I'm trying to say. And by that, I mean secret. I don't, and I don't mean... I have a piece of information that I'll share with, with you, and now we know a secret. I mean that 
the kinds of knowledges and the kinds of altered states that we're talking about literally are unbelievable, their secrets, until, of course, you undergo them or you become them. I, um, you know, to use a, a kind of vulgar um, example that's been used in the literature, by the way, you can talk all you want to a six-year-old about what, an, say, an orgasm is, but that, that six-year-old will never know. There's no way, not gonna happen until they get older and then they ha finally have an orgasm then like, oh my God, that's what it is. You know? So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm trying to say is you can talk to your blue of the face to say unsympathetic colleagues or, or, or debunkers about say a paranormal event, but when a paranormal event happens to that person, they're gonna be like, whoa, you know, that's what they're talking about. Um, so that's what I mean by esoteric. There's a kind of, there's a kind of barrier to, to understanding it that's, that's sort of baked into the system. Yeah, based on, if you haven't experienced it, you don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's like you were talking about the counterculture before you started recording. I mean, psychedelics were really important, but before psychedelics? Could have there been a counterculture without psychedelics? I doubt it very much. They needed those experiences to generate that art and that music and that protest and all of those ideas. Um, so that's, that's again, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And, and since I experienced some of the late 60s in San Francisco, I recognize how we're limited by the way we conceive of the world. And what you, you're doing and, I, and I'm doing is trying to say reality isn't what you think it is. There, <laughs> there's something else going on here. Yeah. And you're trying to be able to say that. When you, when, just for uh, some of our audience, when you say paranormal, tell us, what you, tell us some, what you mean by paranormal, the kind of experiences that you're describing. So, so the word paranormal was coined in 1903 by a French actually psychiatrist and lawyer named Joseph Maxwell. Mm. And he meant it, paranormal was the, was the French. And he was riffing on an earlier English word called supernormal. And what they were trying to do was move away from the earlier religious models and say, these things are entirely natural. They're entirely normal but they're beyond our present scientific understanding. So they're supernormal to use the English word or they're paranormal to use the French term. Para just means to the side of. So if something's paranormal, Maxwell was actually studying physical mediumship. So he was studying things like wrappings and poltergeist phenomena levitation tables coming off the ground. He was studying physical events that clearly had spiritual or mental intentions behind them or within them. So for him, the paranormal meant something's happening in the spiritual or the mental world that corresponds to something dramatic happening in the physical world. And you need both that those components to make it paranormal, to make it supernormal. But it's not supernatural for Maxwell or for, or for me either. And by supernatural, this is this older Latin-based category in which for a miracle to be a miracle, it had to come from above. It had to be outside the natural order and it, the agency had to be God. And so you had a miracle, but by definition, a miracle was something supernatural. It was coming from above the natural world. That is not what they meant by the supernormal or the paranormal. They meant something within the natural world that's happening that we simply cannot explain. So that's a very different argument. Um, and so when I use the word paranormal, I mean it in that original kind of technical philosophical sense. I do not mean it in the sense you, you know, you see the paranormal romance section of your, your local bookstore or you know, you, you, you see it on a movie used as essentially an equivalent for supernatural. I do not mean that. It's so clear, Jeff. Uh, it is clear. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, why, why are we confused about these things? It seems pretty clear to me. 
that's why you got to keep writing, baby. Because <laughs> we got to know the minds of those other people who would benefit from knowing uh, what we're being, what we're able to see. So that means having to keep trying to figure out their minds in a way that they can receive the kind of the, uh, Professor X kind of working that we're trying to be able to do. Yeah, and One, see, my my point is too. See, Mark, Max, Maxwell, he's part of the superhumanities. 1903 that was that was 120 years ago almost you know we we've known this stuff for a long time and people have been writing books about it and people have been articulating this it's not it's not some radically new fancy idea it's it's actually a very old idea and it's all there it's all there in our history we just have to know our histories better well, they're not going to go to your school, uh, a lot of the people. Uh, <laughs> no, so, no. So you, we got to go out to where the people are. Uh, That's why we write books, though. You see, you can, anybody, almost anybody can pick up a book and recreate the state of mind that produced the book anywhere at any time. Not everybody, of course, can go to a school. That's, that's expensive and requires a particular point in a life cycle. But books are not like that. Books are time-traveling magical telepathic art forms that you can really recreate the mind state of the person who, who wrote that book. Well said, well said. That's why we've got to do podcasts now though. It's like- uh, <laughs> Well, podcasts are basically quick, simple books, right? Well, and, and hopefully lures for people to buy your books and my books. I mean, that's yeah. one, one way of doing it, but a lot of people aren't reading so much. Is, yeah, does anybody read anymore? I don't know. They, they do. I mean, there's still publishing companies out there. They read, but yeah. they listen to these things. And yeah. what I think I'm having, what I keep trying to do is make the lesson simpler and base it as you implied about the orgasm story on your own experience. You've got to start with your own experience. So you are doing it within humanity saying, hey, you guys are doing stuff that's paranormal and pay attention to it so that you can foster it. I'm doing it now more uh, in the, out, out in the world, uh, trying to get more people to do the same thing, to notice that they have capacities that they aren't told they have. Well, and... So here's the, here's the more radical idea, which of course you know, is that when you pay attention to these synchronicities or these moments of creativity, more of them tend to happen. They, yes. tend, to, they tend to snowball. Yes. And that's what we mean by cultivating these, these, these are abilities. Um, they're actually not on call. I, I don't actually believe people can just evoke them. That's why the superhero thing doesn't really work for me often because we're not like that. We're not like somebody who just call forth a, an ability, but these abilities happen to us. And the more we pay attention to them and the more we engage them, the more likely they are to happen. And the more we ignore them, of course they go away. <laughs> yeah, part of my question is to uh, what can people do to increase the likelihood of these events happening and for our definitions I, I meaningful coincidences include paranormal events yeah. in the way i'm talking about them and i use the term meaningful coincidence because it's an easier term yeah. uh, it, it's it, it gets out there a little more easily yeah uh, and then that's a cover for what you're describing and we're trying to be able to say pay attention to what's happening around you and in you because there's something more that we as humanities, as humans need to know about. How come it's important to know about this, this paranormal, super normal kind of thing? Why is it important for people to know that, Jeff? Well, because the reigning worldview in which we actually live is meaningless and dead and nihilistic. There's really no reason to go on, actually. It's, it's a pretty dark, depressing worldview. And the human being in this worldview is really just a kind of social animal that lives for a time and then fools itself into thinking it doesn't die, and then it dies. 
So it's it's a pretty depressing worldview, actually, and it has psychological um, symptoms that I think you know we can see pretty apparently. Living in a world that's meaningful and that actually speaks to us through physical events, of course, implies that the physical world is is conscious or alive in some way, and that's a very different world in which to live and it's not depressing at all. It's actually the opposite of depressing. It's, it's quite beautiful and ecstatic. Um, although it's sometimes scary too. That's part of the fun of it for some of us. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a fun house going to the carnival and getting scared a little bit and trying to figure out what's going on. Now that's very well said again, Jeff, you are, you put things so clearly. I very much appreciate that. Uh, that we live in a paradigm of, of randomness and deadness and meaninglessness uh, that we need to be able to shake people out of because the only meaning they find is uh, continuing to robot like do what the culture seems to tell them to want or, to do you know or or people do live in religious <laughs> worlds that are deeply meaningful to them but they they almost always exclude everyone else, right? So I live in, I live in, I mean, not me personally, I'm just speaking as a, as a, a particular kind of religious believer. I might live in a world in which I'm the center and God loves me or ultimate reality cares about me, but oh, by the way, not you. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's dangerous. That's, that's like socially disastrous, actually, when you start moving up the scale to, to a, a state or a country or, or a globe. So we need to develop ways of meaning that are not religious in that, in that traditional sense. That's, that's essentially what I'm trying to argue. And what do you have to offer us, Dr. Kripal? Well, meaningful coincidences for one thing. Well, that's a start. I bet that's a start. What do you have to offer us? Because you've done a lot of thinking, reading, and writing about all this stuff. And we need a new paradigm. We got that. And for me, meaningful coincidence is one way to get out of get out of the one that we're in. But what is the paradigm that you see us reaching for? So first of all, everybody asks me that question, right? And you know, my, my first response is a dodge. It's like, look, that's I'm what not, I figure. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not your religious leader. <laughs> you get, I, that's not he's my in his role. Dodge. He's driving off in his dodge. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's not my role, dude. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. Um, now that's a dodge. And I admit that. <laughs> I, Thank you. Yeah. Get out of dodge. Will you? Yeah. I, I think the, the basic idea is that consciousness or mind is, is basic to reality and is not uh, some kind of tangential or accidental byproduct of the brain. I think if we could make that move, a lot of our other problems would be addressed. Um, I mean, I think most of us imagine that we're kind of ghosts in a body or in a machine and that we're walking around and that life's about getting more and more stuff and consuming more and more things and competing with everyone else because everybody else is a machine in a body, right? They're a ghost in a, in a machine. Okay. That's, that sounds like a recipe for disaster eventually. Um, but if suddenly consciousness or mind is cosmic and, and environmental and ecological, and we're a part of that larger life force, then wow, we, we better start behaving differently and thinking differently. And that could shape everything from the way we form our, our economies to the way we handle the environment, to the way we um, engage in politics. I mean, that would, that would change everything if we saw ourselves as parts of a greater whole rather than as parts competing with all the other parts. I propose that... Uh we recognize that we're each of us part of a giant human organism I call the collective human organism or 
And this collective human organism, CHO, has roles for each of us in it as part of traversing through time and space on this planet. Yeah. And, and that very much involves recognizing that we're part of this one thing. However, one of the things earlier you said was it's not for everybody. This paranormal is not for everybody. Right. So would you this, what, do you, what did you mean by that, Jeff? Well, okay, so let's take your CHO. I, so that's my view too. I'm, I'm totally with you, CHO all the way. Um, however, I think people like you and myself and a lot of these listeners have to admit that most people will never get there. Most people will not accept that. And so then we have to decide, well, what do we do with that? Fact. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I anxiously await your comment. Well, again, I'm not going to dodge on I, you. But I, but I, dodgeball I, was fun too, but yeah, try no, to go for it. <laughs> no, I think the first thing we do is accept that, recognize yes. that. And we stop pretending to ourselves that everybody's going to hear this and embrace it and, and rah, rah, rah. No, they're not. Bernie, they're not. Um, so well, how do we how do we meet people where they're at as, as opposed to where we're at? And then it becomes, this is what worries me, just like the religions that yeah. say, yeah, it's us yeah. and not you. Yeah. What, 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 oh. what happens there? <laughs> I know. That's why religion is so important because, you know, it's essentially philosophy for the masses. You know, it's like, how do you translate these ideas into something people can accept? You know, when you were talking about CHO, I, you know, honestly, I was thinking of St. Paul and the body of Christ. I mean, that's what he said. He said, we're all parts of the body of Christ. It's all one. It's all one body. Hey, what do you know? I didn't know this Jewish boy was heading into the, yeah, the Jesus so, thing here. Yeah. So, okay. Um I don't know. I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with you sound like Paul the Apostle and Rabbi? I mean, come on. Um, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, okay. So this is why this this not, I'm not pitching a new book, but I kind of am. Um, the soup the superhumanities, you know, the first phrase of the subtitle is historical precedence. Well, the historical precedence of the superhuman are the religions. You know, if you want to know what superhumans look like in the past, just look at the religions because that's what they're about. They're about turning the human into the superhuman. The moral objections part of the subtitle is the kind of things we're talking about now. Like what, what are the objections to this vision in the modern world and what should we be concerned about? And it turns out there's quite a bit we should be concerned about. And the new realities is essentially the sciences. It's that, you know, we know things about our world now through evolutionary biology and the genome and quantum mechanics that we just didn't know 100 years ago. And that fundamentally makes reality more one, more unified, more, more mysterious, frankly. So I think that the real answer to your questions where you keep pushing me to be the, the, the religious preacher is... We're going oh, me? to do I'm, I'm me have to do this gradually and we're going to have to do it together. And as a culture, we're not, we're not looking to one person to solve our problems. That's the religious answer, by the way, we're looking to a group, a large group of people over many generations to address a set of problems. This is what the sciences are so good at. They're multi-generational, they're transgenerational, and they're built on fallibility and changing one's model and mind. And I think that's where we have to get to now with, with culture. Uh, the only question I have of uh, what you just said is timing. Uh, we're headed for the sixth major extinction. Yep. Uh, and it's happening faster than anybody yep. wants to think. Yep. And, and the politics of the world are such to forget about it, to deny it and just uh, yep. go, go me, me, me. So this has to happen a little faster than a couple of generations, I'm thinking. I, hey, we're trying. I mean, I, I don't know what else we can do other than keep trying. I, I don't. I don't again, I don't think we can we can force that transformation. We can't. 
we ha we can't it has to be if you meet the buddha on the road kill him idea you've got to have the experience yourself you've got right got to right what when I wrote the Eslin book and went on tour, which, by the way, was a very bad idea going on a book tour. Don't, don't do that. It's, it's a bad idea. If you want to be humiliated and humbled, go on a book tour. Oh, That's a great thing. Um, but anyway, I, so I went, on, Jesus. I went on this, yeah, I went on this failed, fail, utterly failed book tour. And the number one question I got, this is in 2007, is how do we do this again? And my answer was always, you can't. You've got to wait for all the pieces to come together. The, you know, the zeitgeist, as they say, has to be there. You cannot affect this by yourself or whenever you want. It just, it's not going to work. You can do it in, in groups. And that's what you're trying to be able to say. You can do it in small groups. And that's how social transformation happens is that those small groups become slightly larger and larger and larger until they're until they're quite dominant um and then they usually become bad by the way exactly <laughs> uh, so it's you know history here is wow it's um it's pretty pretty bracing how nice of you to say it that way. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not naive. Let me put it that way. And I don't think anyone who's trained in the in history is naive about these things. Well, part of what the lesson of coincidence is: patterns repeat themselves, mm -hmm. and they repeat themselves in all kinds of contexts. And the 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 image I have is of the caterpillar to the butterfly, and you probably know that one. Oh yeah. Uh, where the a lot of the cells die, uh, so the butterfly can live. Yeah, and that does look a lot like uh, like um, uh, like revelations, and it's been around a long time that there's going to be an apocalypse, and not just with uh, Christianity, but before that. Yeah, and, and that this idea of the thing blowing up and a few being saved has been around for quite a while. And I, <sighs> you know, actually, what happens to a caterpillar is it goes into a cocoon and it melts itself. I mean, it literally melts. And uh, these cells called, by the way, called imaginal cells. I love the term, imaginal yeah, cells. They're what's reconstituted as, as the butterfly or the moth. So, um, yeah, that's a pretty radical transformation. Yeah, it's, it's going from uh, living on a leaf to being able to fly and look beautiful like a soul, like the butterflies tend to be. You know, that was the major metaphor for Frederick Myers, who invented these terms supernormal and imaginal and um and telepathy by the way and the story he always told is you know the the little wormy things munching on the leaves when the butterfly lands nearby they're like hey that's sort of that sort of looks like me but it's not me <laughs> and um maybe it's a future me and uh, you know, and he says, that's what it's like. That's what these, these abilities are. They're, they're like, um, he called them imaginal, by the way. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, because he got it from entomology, that, that language of imaginal and larval was already there in the 19th century. Oh, it was? I yeah. Didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. They called, they called the wormy caterpillar, the larval stage, and they called the butterfly, the imaginal stage, because it was the perfect imago of the insect. It was the mature adult form. And so what Myers was essentially arguing was that things like telepathy and coincidence and precognition are these imaginal forms that we can perceive or sense, but they're really about our future humanity. They're not about our present humanity. And that's uh, what we're talking about, Jeff. Um, we're talking about the future of humanity uh, yeah. and what we each of us are trying to contribute to it uh, and doing doing this best we can with the limited resources we have. Uh, we're coming to the end uh, of our time. And I, I just, I think we have a mutual admiration society here, <laughs> you and I, because uh, I, I feel what what I think I'm coming from you towards me for, for you, because you are, so clear and so academic 
in your writing and so uh, grounded in what's out there and aware of it and so informed about stuff that I, I don't know about because you've been you've been studying this stuff I've been out there running around uh, being crazy and uh, trying to see what happens uh, so I've been kind of testing them testing stuff out uh, as well as writing writing and reading about them so uh, to be able to say that you and I um, both identify with Professor X I got less hair I'm more like him blah yeah, blah blah you, you are yeah. the, the telepathy capacity of Professor X um, is one that was that's clear in all of those stories and the idea that somehow they find the students to come to the class uh, the difference you've made that's so clear is that you can't just call on the superpowers but we are responsible for them and we can help create them and you're just opening the you're opening the way for people to think about their own capacities uh, and what are some of your capacities uh how come you where does you get the spider-man idea that you have that you weave webs that ensnare people in your <laughs> ideas no my when i was a kid i was i was a spidey fan my, my brother was incredible hulk and i was spider-man and i just you know i have a lot of fondness for that character because he's kind of geeky always oh, he geeky yeah and he's uncomfortable with his abilities and uncomfortable with girls man I yeah mean, <laughs> right and he's always mock if you read the comics in the 70s the, the thing about spider-man was that he mocked himself and all of his his enemies in a really pretty dramatic way where you know superman and batman were they were sort of humorless actually they, they were, were they were they were way too serious and way too sure of themselves and um, Spidey and, and the Hulk is particularly too, who was always battling the army, by the way, um, you know, both of them were like tortured and twisted and not so sure about anything. And so I just, I always really admired that. And I have to say, and I've said this in books, Bernie, is that those eyes on Spider-Man, they're alien eyes. There, there's something about the alien gray and Spider-Man that is resonating in the culture at that point and, and still at this point. And so I, I don't know, that's, that's my, that's, again, that's my adolescence coming out, um, but there's something there. There's something more there too uh, about you. This is about, you know, the human characteristics of Spidey. Yeah. Uh, and you didn't, but Spidey, was a web guy yeah he was into the web before it happened uh, <laughs> right. he was like uh, a webmaster right uh, you could, so i'm looking at what his superpower was yeah or is and yeah. you um because you're a modest guy you don't like to talk about certain things blah 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 but if you're identifying with spider-man well yeah i joke about spider-man i think i identify more with professor xavier and if I had to say I, that if I have to say I have a superpower, it's definitely writing. Uh, and I, I think writing is, is a form of telepathy. And I, and I mean that quite literally. I, I think when we write books, we're sending our own thoughts and, and feelings out telepathically and people can pick those up anywhere at any time and recreate that. And so I, I think there's really something truly. Now what, you've, what you're getting there with the writing um, that I've come across, just think that just us talking here, even if nobody, if certain people don't watch it, it, these ideas we're jamming with go out into what I call the psychosphere, our mental atmosphere, which you are familiar with. So that when you're writing a book and sitting there writing it, you are generating ideas into the psychosphere, which people can start picking up telepathically. Yeah. You know, when I wrote, I, when I wrote my book about paranormal phenomena, um, I, I made this really strong argument that paranormal phenomena tend to follow linguistic or literary paths. Oh, wow. And they do actually. And of course, that means that literature can also function paranormally. It, it goes both ways. And I think if you look at mediums and psychics and people who have these experiences you'll see that they they often involve words and texts and books 
And so there's something essentially literary or linguistic about the paranormal and, and vice versa. There's something paranormal about literature and, and words. And so I, when I say that books are telepathy, I really mean that. I don't mean that in a um, metaphorical way. I mean that quite, quite literally. So when you write, the ideas are going out there for people to pick up. Yeah. Telepathically. Yeah. And not just, not just ideas, but feelings, nuances, uh, precision. I mean, you've commented on how things are so clear. Well, they're clear because I've been writing about this for 15 years, Bernie, and I've been correcting myself and thinking my, yeah. all of this. And, and so then someone like myself sends that out there and then other people pick it up. They recreate it in their hearts and minds. They send it out again or they do something else with it. And that's how, that's how things progress or that's how things are transmitted. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I mean, I believe that. I believe it's a kind of transmission and, um, and it's weird. It's really, really weird, but it's really, it's, really wonderful. It's weird, but it's true. And that's just weird yeah. compared to what, compared to what we think of now. Yeah. So uh, as I, as I step away from uh, talking with you, Jeff, uh, the professor X identity and Eve more specifically, the idea that word creation, idea creation, they're like, go out into the psychosphere or noosphere from Chardin and, and that other people, if they're tuned, can pick it up if it hits their antenna. So that's why you have to keep doing what you gotta do. <laughs> right. you, got, you, just, you, you have to do it. I mean, there's no, there's no stopping you. Um, if you can do it, if you're capable of doing it, you've got to do it. Despite all the meetings you have to go to administratively, <laughs> right. you, you, your sanity comes from like getting it out there. Yeah. And, and I'm about to em embark on getting my book out there and going to the podcast thing and doing, imagining getting it out there. And it's an adventure that is very different from as you... <laughs> indirectly described in your book tour this is a kind of like still a book tour and it's like yeah. oh God. i'd rather write i've got a i've got my biography of my coincidence stories starting from when i was eight or nine and i i, I want to get that out there and i i want to get a cho for a psychotherapy for the cho like um, an observer of the cho to help that man i mean i've got that idea out there also but I got to do this one right now. Yeah. I got to get these ideas out there. Yeah, no, this is the work. This is Gurdjieff. Uh, I always wondered what he meant by the work. Uh, this is well, he work. meant something else, of course, but not unrelated. I mean, I think it was a similar kind of thing. Oh, it isn't the same as like the great work, your own great work. That's not what Gurdjieff meant. He met, you know, he was very esoteric. He, he, he was very clear that it wasn't for everybody. It was only for a select few. And, you know, he meant his work. Oh. <laughs> he meant do what he says. I mean, he was one of these charismatic, you know, guru types. Um, but, I mean, it worked for some people. And I'm sure he was right on his own level. Hey, uh, I got a question for you. Um, I've just run into a guy that was helping us with the coincidence project. We, we just become a nonprofit. And this was one of our big supporters and he talked about love all the time, how important love was. And, and he donated some money, not much uh, for him anyway, to the coincidence project, the first guy to give it. But when we asked him to sign the agreement, which included uh, a requirement to resolve conflicts, if we couldn't do it on your own, he quit. And he demanded that uh, his money be returned. And if he didn't get his money returned, he was going to like uh, litigate. So I was, con I was struck with this, uh, this polarity in this man who's got a really good heart and how the other side was the shadow, as people like to say, started coming out. How do you look at stuff like that? I don't, I mean, people are complex. <laughs> I mean, right, we have this, this superhuman or, or collective side to us, but we also have this egoic or personal, you know, uh, historical side to us. And I think both are true. I think somebody can be fundamentally about a universal love, but also be, you know, kind of messed up and mean and cruel uh, as a person. 
um, I don't think they're exclusive at all. Well, it's been hard for me to accept that, but uh, I just have to right now. From yeah, what people, I people are not one thing. I mean, I, you're the psychiatrist. I don't need to tell you that. Um, you and my, my mother said that to me, too. And I, yeah. I'm a person. <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, we're really complex. Um, well, I, I, be able to accept the polarity is what I am. Yeah. Uh, what, polarity is around us all the time. And don't yeah. get fooled by the, one of the things showing up over here. Well, we're, we are also polarized individually. And I, and I don't mean in a political sense. I mean, in a kind of metaphysical sense, there's, there's always an inner and an outer, you know, well, not always, but usually. Uh, and so yeah. we're, we're polarized. And that's, and as we end, the work each person has to do on him or herself is fundamental to all this but it's not just about me it's about me with other people is what you're trying what you're saying too so yeah it's 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 really been a pleasure not only for yesterday to meet the other donald duck uh but to meet uh, another professor x and to see one of the distinctions is that you can't call on your superpower just to have it happen except when you sit down and start writing jeff <laughs> that's, well, yeah that's a lot of work though Bernie. yeah I, but you you've got a habit of doing it you got to have it right. otherwise you wouldn't be doing it so right. you, you have a little bit of a responsibility but well jeff thank you very much for the kind words you had to say about my book and uh, most importantly i'm deeply appreciate being able to get to know you better uh, yeah no it's an honor it's fun too if it ain't fun it ain't fun i mean it's got to be it's got to be fun so thank you very much for for being with me today okay thanks this psychosphere is our mental atmosphere like a hologram of cosmic consciousness